This is Federalism Matters, a podcast making federalism real and relevant to our daily lives. I'm Dr. Wes LaCrone, a fellow at the Center for the Study of Federalism and professor of political science at Widener University. Today's topic explores the way federalism affects the process of legislating redistricting, which occurs every 10 years after the census. However, before we explore this issue, I'd like to encourage you to visit us at federalism.org if you'd like to learn more about federalism or specific issues related to federalism. You can also stay up to date on all of our activities by signing up for our newsletter. And now, our topic for today's podcast. In a federal democracy, how should voters get to choose their representatives? What role should elected representatives play in deciding who will elect them? Surprisingly, redistricting or the process of redrawing geographic boundaries for electing legislative representatives is highly dependent on politics. Sometimes the majority party creates an advantage for its candidates. In other cases, particularly when political power is divided between the political parties, in other words, you might have a Republican governor and a democratically controlled legislature, districts can be drawn to keep incumbents in power. Today's podcast explores redistricting controversies across America's federal election system. I'm joined by Dr. Joseph Marbach, a fellow at the Center for the Study of Federalism and president of Georgian Court University. We've recently written a Federalism Digest on the topic of redistricting, which we'll discuss today. The full report is available at federalism.org. Dr. Marbach, welcome. Thanks, Wes. It's good to be with you. Why don't we just start by defining some terms? What do we mean by the terms reapportionment and redistricting? Central to what we're talking about, reapportionment, Wes, is the allocation of the number of representatives in any political system. Redistricting is the next step, and that's the drawing of those geographic boundaries that a representative is responsible for representing in his function or her function as a legislate as a member of the legislature. Why do we have controversies in this? It really stems from the Constitution. And Article 1, Section 2 requires that the United States undergo a census every 10 years. And based on the results of that census, the number of seats in the U.S. House of Representatives is going to be allocated among the states. We end up with a set formula of 435 after some controversies in the 19-teens and 1920s. So in, in 1913, Congress developed a formula for allocating the seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. And then that, that formula was codified in 1929 in the uh, Permanent Apportionment Act that Congress passed. And this set the number at 435. And it ends up really resulting in a, in a zero-sum game. By that, I mean, if a state gains population in the 10 years since the prior census, it's going to gain a number of seats in the House. On the other side, if a state has lost population, it's going to lose a number of seats that it had in the House. Well, one caveat is that every state is guaranteed at least one representative. And that becomes the basis of the formula for allocating the remaining seats in the House. Once the seats have been allocated, then it's up to the individual states to determine how the geographic boundaries of those districts are going to be drawn. And that's where gerrymandering or controversies about apportionment and redistricting really come into play. You mentioned that the states are responsible for redistricting. Does the federal government mandate how this should be done, or do states have the discretion over the, the process for redistricting? The answer is kind of both. The states in general are given a lot of discretion 
in terms of drawing the the districts for the legislature. And I, and I should mention that since the 1960s, this notion of reapportionment has also been applied to the states and to local jurisdictions as well, so that there's some sense of, of equal representation that goes on. The Constitution is really silent on the way that states should draw up these legislative districts. There are many variations. The most common is that the state legislatures themselves argue this and haggle it out. And generally, the majority party controlling the state legislature, and often if it is the executive, the governor, will draw districts that are very favorable to their political party. In other cases, a legislative committee is assigned to drawing up the districts. And in some other instances, it's a separate independent body that will draw up the boundaries of those legislative districts. The one thing that is true in all cases is that it is highly political. And so the ones who make those decisions are really lobbied and pressured to draw districts in favor of one party or another. Here you mentioned the word gerrymandering. Can you tell us exactly what that means and why people are concerned about the process of gerrymandering? Gerrymandering, and it's a practice that's as old as the country itself, uh, is the drawing of legislative districts to benefit one party or one group of individuals over another party or another group of individuals. And this is controversial because it can skew how people are are represented in in the legislative body, whether it's Congress or state legislature or even city hall. So if you, for example, pack, and this is one of the strategies, packing, if you want to put all the Republicans in one district and guarantee a seat, you can draw districts that might look like a salamander, which is where the name gerrymander comes from. Uh, Or if you wanted to limit the power of a political party and break up the power of, say, a Republican party. You can crack the strength by drawing a district in such a way that more Democratic voters would be allocated to that geographic boundary. So cracking and packing are really the the two principal strategies for gerrymandering a particular district, drawing it in a way to benefit a party or other groups of individuals. So it sounds like some politics can be played with this process from what you're saying. If I'm a citizen and I, I'm dissatisfied with the process of redistricting in my state, what options do I have? Your first option is to try to change the rules of the game and look to either the legislature to change the way that it draws districts or look to a constitutional amendment for your state that might indicate how those districts should be drawn in some kind of fair way or way that seems more equitable. But more more than likely, the most effective way is to go to the courts, whether it's the state court or the federal court, and show that you have been wronged in some way or that the group that you represent has been wronged in some way by the drawing of the these districts. It's really through the courts that these districts have been modified, changed, and even overturned in recent years. So Wes, as I mentioned, it's really through the courts that citizens have their best option to to change districts. As a result, this leads to a number of controversies that we've seen in our legal system related to redistricting. Can you tell us about some of those cases related to redistricting and reapportionment? 
The first thing is just the concept of apportionment. What we saw was there's a, a series of cases in the 1960s, and you already alluded to a couple of them in that the Supreme Court applied redistricting to both state and local elections and, and to the districts there, in addition to, to the House of Representatives. These cases in the 60s were referred to as the redistricting cases because there's a series of them. Up until that point, the Supreme Court really hadn't said much about apportioning and reapportioning and what districts should look like. But what we saw in the redistricting cases was essentially that the Supreme Court had taken a look at the lack of redistricting in many states. And if we took a look at the history of American population movement since the early 1900s, we we moved away from being a rural society to being an urban society and then suburban society as well. So there had been these huge population shifts around the country and states, and many states had not actually reapportioned to take into account the fact that less people lived in rural areas and more people lived in cities or eventually the suburbs. From a political standpoint, that's not surprising because if you're in a rural area and you control the state legislature, why would you want to give up your power and give that to these new areas that had gotten more population? What we saw was the Supreme Court came along and and in those cases, essentially adopted the idea that representatives represent people and not places. You know, state senates that might be on the basis of counties were not an appropriate way to be able to build your state legislature. Rather, the concept of one person, one vote. In these redistricting cases, the Supreme Court said each district should be compact and as close as possible, the same amount of citizens. And that's pretty much been the case since the 1960s in the redistricting process. We did see a shift in kind of power around the different areas of states. That's pretty much settled right now. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other controversies associated with apportionment and who constitutes that one person and that one vote. In 2016, in the case of Evanwell versus Abbott, the Supreme Court was asked, who counts as that one person? Is that a voting age person or is it just the entire population of a district? What the Supreme Court said was that basically the metric should be all people uh, as a consequence of that, you know, we, we count everybody, not just those people that are old enough to vote. Another controversy is very interesting because the census counts people that are in prisons by where they're actually housed as opposed to where their last legal residence was. Those areas of the state that have prisons tend to have more representation than they probably should otherwise because of the fact that there are prisoners there and a lot of prisons are in rural areas. What question that we probably see coming before the Supreme Court in future years is the issue of prison gerrymandering. Do we count a prisoner from their last place of residence or do we count them from where they're actually housed while they're doing time? And again, this hasn't reached the Supreme Court, but it is certainly a topic that is ripe for making its way up to the Supreme Court. Wes, another area that's been subject to gerrymandering is is gerrymandering along the lines of race or racial gerrymandering. This is especially true since the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. How has the Supreme Court dealt with the whole issue of racial gerrymandering? This is a difficult issue for the court to be able to deal with. One of the things is that the Supreme Court in Thornburg versus Gingles in uh, 1986 filled in the pieces of how we would know that there was discrimination that takes place. In the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Acts of 65, Congress did not allow any electoral maps that intentionally or unintentionally discriminated by race. And in Thornburg versus Gingles in in, in 86, they came up with a three-pronged test. 
Do minorities constitute enough population to be the majority in the district? Does the minority tend to vote for the same party? And do non-minorities have a tendency to vote against minority candidates? And if those three criteria are met, then basically it's up to the state legislature to draw a majority-minority district within that state, because otherwise it would violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. This issue comes up relatively frequently with the court. We had a recent decision just this past year in the 2022-23 session of the court, and that was Allen versus Milligan. And there was a map of, of Alabama that was drawn after the 2020 census. The question was, Alabama has 27% population of African Americans, but only one out of the seven of their house districts was actually represented by a black representative. So the question was, was that map drawn in a way that somehow violated the Civil Rights or the Voting Rights Act? The Supreme Court basically said yes. The state argued it had a race-neutral approach, and because of that, they just kind of created this map, and it just so happened one out of seven was black. But the Supreme Court said that this was a way that they cracked up, as you mentioned, cracking and packing, cracked the black vote and that the uh, Alabama would have to go back and redraw their districts. So this is still a topic that the Supreme Court deals with on an ongoing basis. Yeah, it certainly seems that way, too, that just as you outline some of those criteria, that it's it's very difficult for the court to identify and define what it means by gerrymandering and especially political gerrymandering. I know the court's been uh, reluctant to get involved with political gerrymandering, leaving it to the political process. But sometimes it does get involved. And what's the current state? Well, political gerrymandering has always been a question where the Supreme Court has never been able to come up with a rule as to where they see it taking place. In the most recent decision, and it was only a five to four majority in Rucho versus Common Cause, which was in 2019, the Supreme Court just basically threw up its hands and said, we're out of here. We're out of this. There, there's no way for us to decide whether or not we've got political gerrymandering without in and of itself becoming political ourselves. And their argument was, this is something that's best less left to the legislative processes or potentially the Supreme Courts of a state under their state constitution. But we, for the most part, do not want to have anything to do in the future with the idea of whether something's been politically gerrymandered. They really did just throw up their hands at that point. That leaves it to go back to the states. There's nothing wrong with the state deciding whether or not the process has been used incorrectly. And in fact, we saw that in 2018 in a very interesting case in Pennsylvania, and that was the League of Women Voters versus the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in 2018, whereby the Pennsylvania Supreme Court didn't use the federal constitution, but rather used the free and equal clause of the Pennsylvania constitution to throw out what they considered to be a politically gerrymandered map in Pennsylvania. Democrats uh, outnumbered uh, Republican voters in the state, and, and the map was drawn in such a way to heavily advance Republican interests and advance the Republican delegation in the U.S. House. And what they said was basically the free and equal clause of the Pennsylvania Constitution guarantees that everyone has an, an equal right of participation in the process. And the fact that so many districts were gerrymandered and only a few were competitive meant that some people had more of a say in the election process because they were in competitive districts than did others that were completely gerrymandered. So that was a case in which the state constitution was what actually decided that the, the map was unconstitutional in the state constitution. 
the Supreme Court had to just this year step in and come between a legislature and its Supreme Court in North Carolina to decide whether or not the Supreme state Supreme Court really had the right to be able to use judicial review against a map. And that was Moore versus Harper, uh, again, just, just this past year. Basically, what the state legislature did was they did something uh, that's known as the independent state legislature's theory. And that was they looked at the U.S. Constitution and said, the election clause says, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. The state of North Carolina's argument was that it was up to the legislature, and they made the maps, and under the federal constitution, the state Supreme Court had no jurisdiction over deciding whether or not the maps were constitutional or not. And the Supreme Court, in a, in a very interesting case that could have had very broad-ranging consequences, said that the state Supreme Court did indeed have judicial review over the maps and read that elections clause a little bit more expansively than, than we saw otherwise. So they basically told the state Supreme Court don't get too radical in the way that you look at these maps, but you do have the right of judicial review. Dr. LeCrone, it's always great to talk to you, and I especially enjoy our conversations about federalism and our topic today about redistricting. Um, it's a very interesting and, con and contentious topic, and we certainly know it has profound impact on American democracy, and we'll keep our eye on it and update the public as uh, events warrant. Absolutely. Well, it's also been great to talk to you today, uh, Joe. And uh, you can check out our Federalism Digest on redistricting at federalism.org. It includes resources for exploring redistricting. Uh, if you happen to be an educator, it also has topics for classroom discussion that you might be interested in using. To learn more about this and other federalism-related topics, please visit us at federalism.org. Of course, there is a wealth of other information about the American federal system at federalism.org, including the option to subscribe to our newsletter to be notified of future podcasts and reports. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Federalism Matters. And remember, as always, federalism balances self-rule and shared rule.